This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Coming up on today's show, some concerns over a privately produced vaccine passport. It's called Port Pass. When it comes to artificial intelligence, and we're seeing it more and more often, what do we need to be aware of? Can it violate our human rights? We'll have that discussion. And the two Michaels in exchange for Meng Wanzhou. Everybody seems to accept that. But what does that mean going forward? It's a pretty bold statement from the Chinese. Um, we're going to jump right into the show today, uh, get right to discussion here. Uh, we're going to talk about Port Pass, which is the app developed by a local software developer in Calgary and uh, touted by the Calgary Flames um, as the preferred method of proving you're vaccinated when you go to attend a Flames game at the Calgary Saddle Dome. Now, the first real test happened, of course, on Sunday with the Oilers and Flames preseason game, and I think it's fair to say... Didn't go smoothly, but we're going to talk with the developer of Port Pass now, Zach Hussein, and get his insight and his opinion on how things are rolling out with Port Pass. Zach, thank you for your time this morning. Appreciate you joining us. Thank you, Shay. So I know there were some issues Sunday night when this thing rolled out. Is Port Pass operational? A lot of people saying it it just didn't work on Sunday. So what happened was we had an influx of fans, and our server paused because, you know, when you have so many fans at one time coming on, um... You know, it's it kind of froze on us, so we we had to get that unpaused within an hour, and it was up and running again. But that was our technical difficulty through growing pains as we were maneuvering through, um, you know, an early startup. Are you confident that problem has been resolved? In regards to that problem, we're we are confident, but we're weary. So we increased our resources for server and uh, and server speed to double or triple what we thought we needed, but I think we've added some additional things here. Okay. Um, Now, obviously, you're aware of the reports that emerged over the weekend as well, that users were able to create, well, completely fake accounts with famous actors' press photos as the identification component. What happened? When we talked, you know, in the lead-up to this, you told us it was completely secure, it was totally reliable, and everything had to be verified. At least in some cases, it doesn't appear that's true. So that user that did that, he wasn't verified. He had three more steps to go. There was his QR code didn't work. He was actually already removed off the database. So he wasn't even on there. And, uh, you know, this individual, instead of helping us here, just causes this alarm. And uh, you know what? It's valid. We're going to have, what we do have right now is two security firms, cybersecurity firms on this. Uh, with our app development team to work together and ensure that uh, we can fix holes and uh, fix patches. And, and if there's anything, you know, we, we want to get this up and going. But again, these are little holes that we need to fix. So you're saying that he that actually wasn't a pass that would have worked at the Saddle no, Dome. That was just in process. He would not have been able to get into the Saddle Dome with what he had created? 100%. Because, hey, if someone showed up there and you get scanned, 
you're not Robert Schneider, clearly. Right. Your picture is not you, clearly, when you show it. So, no, that individual was not even verified. You know, he, he was pulling a fast one. There's two more things. His scanner wasn't activated or his QR code wasn't activated. And uh, obviously something like that can, you know, try and attack us for something we're just trying to get started. But that wasn't uh, accurate on his end on that. Okay, there are also questions about security. You know, programmers have reported that there's some back-end issues that are not completely secure. You had said that all the information was being kept in Canada. Now there's some indications that maybe some's in Ohio, things like that. What about the security and the confidence people can have in where their data is going? Okay, so once a user is approved, their data is actually deleted, right, Okay. off of our system. So that's the thing. In terms of when the whole uh, Ohio uh, Amazon Web Services uh, defaults back and kicks back to Ohio, but that doesn't mean your data is in Ohio. That means our servers uh, in the cloud is in Ohio. Just to clarify that for people, it's not your data is in Ohio. Um, so, anyways, you know we're trying to say it, it bounces back, and we're, we're trying to say, okay, let's put it back here, and then find ways with cybersecurity firms to literally lock it in place here and. Uh, and not have it bouncing around. And obviously that's uh, with my app development team here and uh, the cybersecurity firms. So we're not there yet, but you're working on it. We're working on it. And I mean, obviously, you know what? Uh, I wish that individual that's very vocal on Twitter could at least reach out to us and help us instead of just constantly going out there publicly to do this. I mean, you know, we're, we're out of Calgary, we're out of Alberta. We want to make something out of the West and, Instead of tearing somebody down, let's work together. And uh, that's what I would hope. But there is there's a lot to work to do. Um, you know, uh, we're doing, I guess I'd say, two years of work in two weeks at a time right now. Mm-hmm. Things are moving so quickly. But we are, we are getting there. And, uh, you know, what we did is we turned off our server, actually, to have a few audits done from cybersecurity firms to say where exactly is there things that we're not seeing from uh, our app development teams, what we're not seeing. Once that's uh, reviewed and uh, we do have green lights there, we will put it back up. But right now we said, let's turn it off because uh, our app development team needs to talk to the cybersecurity firms to review everything right now. So it's better to have it off, go through things, and then turn it back on. Turn it back on. So right now you can't access it as you work through the whatever fixes you need to implement. Okay. And that, that's uh, being done today and yesterday, yes. Gotcha. Okay. I, now, you, I, I got to ask you, Zach, and this guy we're talking about is Conrad Jung, who was the guy who okay. did all of this. Um, he was on uh, 6.30 Ched Mornings in Edmonton this morning talking about another side to this story that I want, uh, you know, I want you to be able to respond to and give me some clarity on. This is what he had to say. I received three or four calls in the span of like an hour from a phone number that had no caller ID. And when I finally picked it up, it seemed like that somebody was trying to impersonate a city of Calgary police officer trying to intimidate me and my family for to, to take the information off of um, the internet. So Zach, the question, did you call this guy? Did somebody on your team call this guy? Uh, nope, we do. The, actually, it's out there yesterday in our statements that the CPS has called him. So, you know, he is, I don't know what's going on there. I haven't talked to the CPS today, but no, we haven't called him. I haven't had a chance yet to even breathe. So no, definitely <laughs> haven't called him on that. So that's, I don't, I, I think he should actually call the Calgary police and speak with them rather than uh, thinking this is um, a fake. Because 
that same evening, uh, a couple nights ago at the Flames t- time or the night after, he did get a call from a Calgary police officer, and that constable has it on uh, record. So I think Conrad should also um, follow up with these individuals and uh, and deal with this. So I don't know about these unknown calls and all that. I don't know how the police okay. usually do that, but but he should call and uh, and figure it out instead of thinking it's an impersonation. I don't know. That is a little weird to me, too. I would be a little yeah. awkward it out. <laughs> but he should call them and just follow up. Follow I think up. Yeah. Okay. Um, last question here. Does Porth Pass have a future? Can you come back from this? Uh, obviously, it's not the rollout that you were hoping for. The Flames are still working with you. They haven't abandoned the project, I understand. So um, do you think this is a growing pain that you can you can make it through? You know what? We we're gonna we're gonna keep trying and uh, and at the end of the day, it's the goal is to do good here. The goal is to make sure we can do it right. And um, unfortunately, there are some things that I guess we do need to fix. And uh, my team found things that hey, we need to add more security here. We need to add things here. And and they are getting full audits done. So I hope that we can come back from this you know a lot of organizations that we work with are saying you know hang in there we're with you uh let's get let's get these bugs or whatever you want to call them um holes uh fixed here so that individuals like that gentleman are not going to be um able to attack us yeah Zach, I know it's a tough time for you, and uh, you got a lot going on, and I appreciate the transparency and coming on and answering the questions. Thanks very much. My and, pleasure. Thank you. And best Bye-bye. of luck. Thanks very much. That's Zach Hussein, developer of Port Pass. Um, we'll see how this goes. Not the rollout they were hoping for. No doubt about it. Can they survive? Can they continue? What else do we need to know about these QR codes? and the security concerns that have been raised over the course of this weekend. We're going to get some insight on that with a cybersecurity expert when we come back right after this. All right. So we heard what the Port Pass developer had to say, and obviously they're trying to work through some things. Um, But it's raised a lot of questions about their app. It's raised a lot of questions about this whole vaccine certification security situation in general. Um, What can we transfer from the Port Pass situation to whatever the government may come up with one day, what's happening in BC, all these different things. There's a lot of questions out there about this. Uh, So let's see if we can get some answers. We're going to chat now with Ritesh Kotak who is a cybersecurity tech analyst. Uh, Ritesh, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate it. My pleasure. So, yeah, with this whole Port Pass situation, this is a privately developed app, but clearly, um, with its rollout over the weekend, we're seeing that there are a lot of questions about security, especially when you're talking about personal information like this and where it goes, who's accessing what, and where it ends up, right? Exactly, and that's ex- that's that's the big issue is the fact that you have a private company that's literally saying, "Can you please give us what we call PII, personal identifiable information?" Now, this is you got to think about the type of data that you're actually putting here. You're putting um, your vaccination status. You're putting, uh, in some cases, you're uploading a ID card, which could be a, your health card or driver's license. There's some really sensitive information, so that begs the question: Is if I'm giving you this information, I have a right to know. Where is the data housed? Who has access to it? What are you doing to protect it? Is it going to be repurposed? There's all these questions, not to also mention the security concerns. Uh, is the data encrypted? Um, you know, uh, Has there been a third party that's come in and done what we call a penetration test to see 
mm-hmm. if, if hackers can can get in. There's all these questions that need to be answered that weren't answered before the rollout. And I think that's the question that a lot of people have, right? Is we don't for for a person like me, you sign up and get onto this port pass thing. I think we kind of rely on people like you to take a look at, okay, there are some issues here, because I wouldn't know, you know, how to access the back end of this app and access the information and where it's stored and all the rest of that stuff. I think for your average person, we just don't have a clue how all this stuff works. You're absolutely right. And and are you going through the terms of services? Are you asking about their privacy policies? Are you um, asking them to, you know, what are your, what cybersecurity uh, protections have you put in place or data protection uh, mechanisms have you put in place? Chances are you're not asking that. You don't have the, yeah. um, the the experience or the knowledge. So all the more reason that this is a joint responsibility. You know, it, it's I think it's it's not appropriate for a private vendor to come out um, and say uh, here's an you know here's an app. Give us give us your data. I think there's a joint responsibility here. Um, by organizations and also by the government. Yeah. Now I under I understand. Like I, I completely get it. Carrying around a piece of paper and an ID in a world where everything is digital, we live off our smartphones. So it's so much easier to just flip your phone around and say, yeah. "Scan my code." Makes sense. It makes complete sense. But there's a price to pay for that convenience, and we cannot overlook it because we know with the internet, once something is out there, there's no such thing as delete. There's no getting it back. It's gone. It's completely gone. Absolutely. There's no getting it back. The, uh, um, you know, it's, it's, it's Pandora's box is, has been opened, especially if there's a breach. Um, you know, that opens you up to potential issues around fraud, identity theft. Yeah. Um, your information is out there. It's, it's, it's so difficult. All the more reason, like, we're going to be using apps. I'm not saying we're not going to use apps. But we got to make sure that we do our due diligence and do our homework. See, this is the thing, Ritesh, you know, for like you say, for the millions and millions of people who will be downloading and using these apps, because essentially they have to. Um, having that layer of government responsibility, I think, would provide some layer of protection, at least recourse, right? I mean, it, it, it's, it's a brave new world. I understand that. But that has to be something that's on the forefront for all developers. Absolutely. Now, I... I know that you know the government is going to be coming out with their own apps, uh, and we've seen this from province to province to province. Um, there's also talk potentially of some sort of federal app. But here's here's the thing: is they need to be if 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 they're going to partner with third parties, um, they already do their due diligence. The the problem that we have here is that these are third parties that have not been approved by the government yeah. to use to use the app. And that is what opens up, especially when you have legitimate organizations saying, we recommend you use this app. And I'm, you know, I'm not, I don't want to call out particular apps. I get that they're trying to fill a void, but, um, but at the same time, it's like, this is your data. This is your, you know, this is your information that's, that's getting out there. And the longer the government delays in, in, in putting out some, you know, some sort of mobile app or approving a third-party app and saying, this is going to be the official provider, um, go ahead and download it, we've done our due diligence, it's, it's safe for, for citizens to use it. Until that happens, so what we're going to see is we're going to see many companies try to fill the void because yeah. there is a market, we are, we are mobile-first community, and it's, it's, it's convenient, it's Sure. It just, it is what it is. Yeah, it's the way it's going to go. I think you're right, Ritesh, and and we need the government to get their foot on the gas and get this here quickly. Uh, I appreciate your time this morning. Thank you for joining us.
My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yeah, you bet. That is Ritesh Kotak, who is a cybersecurity tech analyst. And yeah, we know the federal government is working on some sort of a plan that they will make available to the provinces. Provinces of Alberta says they are working on a QR code and will have new information on that available to us uh, in the coming days. Uh, It's already in place in BC and some other parts of the country. I think New York had one literally almost a year ago. Uh, six months ago, at least, I think, they they had a pass. So, I mean, they're out there. There are ways to do this. There's companies that have already implemented it. How long will we have to wait here in Alberta? I'm not sure. But in the meantime, we're seeing some of the issues with, you know, you're printing off the fake vaccine cards and uh, now the issues with Port Pass. So we're definitely in a spot here. An interesting discussion I'm really looking forward to here. We keep hearing about artificial intelligence right now. It's the wave of the future, and we're already seeing it being implemented in some ways, primarily through algorithms and the way that your social media is manipulated and all the rest. So it's definitely a growing industry. And lots of, you know, in Alberta, when we talk about the growing tech sector, a lot of it is centered around artificial intelligence. It's a growth economy. There's no doubt about it. But it comes with a concerns too, right? I mean, there's some things we need to be um, sort of aware of. So we're going to have a chat about the security and some of the issues around artificial intelligence. We're going to chat with Sarah Mazrahi, who is a PhD in law candidate at the University of Ottawa. Sarah, did I say that right? Yes, you did. Excellent. All right. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, this is a really interesting discussion. We're going to be talking about artificial intelligence violating human rights. So explain that to us. What are we talking about? Do we have examples of artificial intelligence already violating some people's human rights? Um, there are so many. I, uh, you know, it's used in healthcare, for example, uh, to detect skin cancers. And it's, it's really useful in the sense that it can often detect uh, the condition before a doctor might be able to. But at the same time, it's not always accurate, and it's proven to misdiagnose patients with darker skin color as cancer-free when that isn't really the case. So they don't get, you know, the health care assistance that they need. Uh, facial recognition is used in everyday contexts that can also be harmful. Uh, we hear often how it's used by police, but it's also used in schools that to monitor how attentive children are in class in ways that constantly scrutinize what, what they feel and what they think and inv- invade their private thoughts. Uh, during COVID, it's been used to monitor students taking online tests to make sure they're not cheating, but sometimes wrongly assessing their behaviors in ways that affect their grades. Um, and one that we often hear a lot of talk about is the kind of mass surveillance that AI enables. Right. It tracks us across our use of the Internet, our connected devices, our smartphones, Fitbits, smart fridges. And even if we have nothing to hide, the use of this information in different ways can negatively impact us. Uh, Our personal data is, for instance, sold to insurance companies to determine whether we should be eligible for coverage, how much we exercise, what kinds of foods we stock in our fridge, the nature of our lifestyle in general. This is data that wouldn't otherwise be readily available to insurance companies, but that's now being used to determine whether we should be eligible for insurance. Um, Other times it's you know, sold to potential employers to help them decide whether to hire us. They're, the uses of, uh, of the information that's uh, made available through mass surveillance can sometimes impact us even if we have nothing to hide. Well, exactly. And it, I think that's part of the issue. I mean, it is so pervasive. It is so widespread. And is, it, is part of the shortcomings with artificial intelligence, at least at this stage of its development, the fact that it's really 
broad-based, right? Like, it, it can't really be niche. Like you're saying, it, it can't adapt for skin color. It can't adapt for this. It can't adapt for that. It doesn't have that human component. It doesn't have the nuance. Is that part of the problem? Um, that is partially the problem. Also, part of the problem is the information that it's, that, that it's trained on isn't always as uh, well-rounded as it should be, sometimes because that information just isn't available. Um, for example, if we're talking about uh, detecting cancer, uh, there's a lot more information um, about uh, cancer in light-skinned people than mm-hmm. there is in darker-skinned people. So it's also a matter of trying to get that data so that the AI can be efficient for people of all skin colors. When we talk about, you know, potential violations of human rights that AI may get itself into. Are the companies that deploy this artificial intelligence, are they not in some way responsible? I mean, we know that if you're, if you're running a business of any other kind, you can't violate somebody's human rights. Um, do these AI companies not have to meet the same standards? Um, so... Most companies don't generally depend. The, the human rights that, that we have that are protected are, are only protected against government intrusion. So most of the time we think that, you know, our human rights uh, are, are, get, are protected across the board, but that isn't necessarily the case. A, a lot of companies now are trying to, you know, m- develop these technologies more ethically with, you know, human, with an eye to human rights and uh, how that affects people, but there is no real obligation to do that, which is why we need concrete regulations to ensure that those, those elements are, that are human rights are protected. Yeah, so what do we need to do? I mean, how do we go about addressing this? Obviously, it's an issue. So one thing that's really important is making sure that the general public is aware yeah. of the potential risks. A lot of the times, these technologies are presented as being very convenient, but we don't really know much about the flip side. Um, And so that makes it difficult for people to make free and informed choices about whether they're willing to give up their human rights just to have uh, access to these conveniences. Uh, Another aspect in order for that to be possible is that companies developing these technologies have to be more transparent about, you know, what the potential effects are, at least where they're aware of them, uh, what kind of information is used, um, how that might impact different people of different populations. And um, part of them being able to know how to do that is through rigorous testing before it's actually deployed onto the market. Are we behind? Typically, when we talk about technology and things like this, we're usually playing a game of catch-up rather than being in front of this. Are we sort of in the same position now when it comes to AI? You mean in terms of developing regulation? Yeah, yeah, Exactly. I would say that we possibly are, but there is still time to address the issue before things get too out of hand. Okay. So it's not a lost cause. Um, Sarah, thank you so much for your time this morning. I really appreciate you joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure chatting with you. Yeah, great discussion. Sarah Mizrahi is a PhD and in law candidate at the University of Ottawa. So the whole China-Canada situation spilled into the United Nations General Assembly yesterday. Our Foreign Minister Mark Garneau was addressing the UN, uh, and he talked about the solidarity of Canada and its allies in defending human rights and international law 
in the wake of the release of uh, the two Michaels. Garneau thanked international partners in standing with Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor during their detention. Canada observed the rule of law and two Canadian citizens paid a heavy price for this commitment. We did so as a matter of principle and we are proud of the courage of our two citizens, the good faith and resilience of their families and the determination and creativity of our diplomats. I want to recognize the support of our many international partners in standing with these Canadian citizens as, as well as those who helped in developing and signing the Declaration on Arbitrary Detention in State-to-State -State Relations. Didn't go over well with the Chinese delegation who immediately pushed back and said, this is not what you're saying it is. Um, it was actually Meng Wanzhou that was held for political purposes on trumped-up charges, and we weren't retaliating, and they were released for medical reasons, not in a tit-for-tat. So the debate rages on at the highest levels. Fact of the matter is, Meng Wanzhou was sent home. Minutes later, the two Michaels were sent home. Let's talk about this with David Webster, an associate professor of history at Bishop's University. Uh, David, thank you so much for your time this morning. I appreciate you joining us. No, thanks for the invitation. So... Just that fact alone, the fact that the two Michaels were in the air within minutes after Mung was in the air from Vancouver, to me, that puts an absolute end to any argument that their detention was anything but hostage diplomacy. It seems pretty obvious, isn't it? Well, I would certainly agree with that, yes. Um, it's a case of hostage diplomacy. It's been officially denied by both the Chinese and American governments. Nevertheless, as you said, the uh, facts are pretty clear of uh, what was going on, yeah. So this, is, this was a swap. And so what does that tell us? Clearly, uh, China indicating they're not playing by the same rules, and that's something that they obviously want people to know, right? Like, take us seriously here. Well, I, I mean, I think that's, that's an important point, yes, that um, there, are sort of, there are a lot of people saying sort of gotcha to China. Um, you know, we, we've proved that you were lying when you said it wasn't um, any connection between the two cases, and when you said these two Canadians were spying uh, you know, this proves that you're not uh, telling the truth with that. Um, I don't think that actually bothers the Chinese government, because I think for them this was a power play. Um, this was an assertion of China's power, an assertion of China's right to, when it suits its national interest, change the rules um, and change the international rules of the game to suit its needs. And, you know, China's position, not mine, but the Chinese government, I think, is that uh, they should have the same right to make and break rules in the international system as the United States has. There should be parity between these two great powers. Um, and, and it is uh, their claim that that's exactly around, what, right? <laughs> that's what, that's what their claim is with Meng. They're saying that that's exactly what the United States did with Meng Wanzhou. Uh, she was they detained for political reasons. Meng was the hostage and that the two Michaels were spies, yes. So it's a mirror image of the, of the uh, position coming from this side of the ocean uh, is what's being broadcast from China, yes. Is that a fair point, though, David? I mean, do, are, are they right? I mean, we know the United States sort of being the, the big bully on the block can do things a little differently and operates, you know, in international realms, not like everybody else sometimes. But um, yeah. we sort of have this belief, at least, that Western democracies adhere to the rule of law does China have a point in saying, you know what, you guys play fast and loose with the rules, why can't we? Well, I think China has a point in it. Um, Canada didn't uh, issue an arrest warrant for Meng Wanzhou. That was the United States. Um, when he was president, Donald Trump sort of suggested that this was a bargaining chip to put pressure on China. Um, for all 
the various official denials that fly, I don't think that um, there's a lot of question that China's trying to say, we can break the rules because you break the rules. Um, from the point of, I mean, from the point of view of any Chinese decision maker, what they've done here is arrested the princess of the uh, biggest corporation in China. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if the son of the owner of an American multinational corporation was arrested, then the United States would be extremely unhappy. So China's behaving in the same way that the United States might behave from its, uh, from its viewpoint. Um, you can't, this is not just some random citizen. This is um, a key figure sure. in the Chinese business elite, right? Um, and they, they are saying, yeah, the, the U.S. breaks the rules all the time. So why can't we? Or why can't we co-create the rules of a new international system with the United States? And this is so it's an assertion of Chinese great power status, and it's an assertion of uh, China's position as a central country in the world. I mean, the name China, the Chinese name for China, Zhongguo, literally means the central country, right? So they mm-hmm. want to be at the center of things. Now, how does it all play in with Canada? I mean, Canada's relationship with China has always been. Uh, it's been tough to nail down. They've waffled, and, and I think yeah. that's because there's two competing interests. They want to be seen as a country, you know, that follows the rules of law, Canada I'm talking about now. But at the same time, they recognize there's a tremendous amount of economic pressure here. So they've been sort of flip-flopping on some of these issues over time as well. Yeah, I mean, uh, Canada-China relations, you could write whole books on it, and people have, of course. Um, and, you know, Canada has traditionally had a position of trying to be really friendly with China um, ever since Pierre Trudeau um, uh, established diplomatic relations with uh, communist China in uh, 1970. Um, and the goal then has been to engage with China as much as possible, and increasingly, as China gets wealthier in the last um, couple of decades, to try to get profits for Canadian business by trading with China, um, you know, pretend, about to become the largest economy in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot of money to be made. So Canada talks about values and norms and rule-based order and all of these uh, slogans. Um, but the hard reality is that Canada hopes to make a lot of money out of trading with China. Um, and there is a lot of money to be made. And I do think that when there's talk of advocacy of Canadian values, it's rather undercut by Canadian actions. So, and there's examples of that uh, for several decades now going on. So when we take a look at what happened with the two Michaels, and now there's a travel advisory out by the government of Canada talking about arbitrary detention by Chinese authorities and things like that. So things are not in a good spot. There, there's no question about that. What does Canada need to do now to get on the right footing with this relationship? Yeah, well... It's a tough one. Um, I don't know if we need a travel advisory to uh, tell us not to go to exactly, China right, right now, necessarily. <laughs> it's not top of agenda for a number of people now. Um, what can we do? Well, I'll start with what we can't do, which is return to business as usual, which is what the, some have, have been calling for. We also can't start treating China as an enemy and start joining military alliances against it, because although that might feel good, it's not actually going to be a very effective policy. Um, so I think we need a couple of things. The first thing we need is that uh, just as 
Canadian policy towards the United States is informed by really good awareness of U.S. politics and society. We need better awareness in this country of Chinese politics and society. Um, this is not the first case of hostage diplomacy. There was one way back in the 1960s with a, Canadi- with a journalist uh, swap, and um, it, China behaved in very similar ways, but nobody remembers these things. So we need better knowledge of what's going on in China in this country. Um, Secondly, when we're talking about human rights, we consistently undercut our own rhetoric with our actions. So when we're talking about promotion of human rights in China, um, we stopped in the 1990s criticizing China in UN human rights forums and started having a closed doors human rights dialogue with them instead. And of course, it didn't achieve anything in terms of advancing human rights in China. Um, but the Chinese stand up and say, don't talk to us about human rights. Take a look at what goes on with indigenous people in Canada. They've said that publicly. Yes, and they're not wrong. I mean, this is absolutely the case. But I mean, I think what we need is both, both of these countries to take honest looks at their own human rights records. Um, and that's, you know, indigenous people in Canada are, to put it mildly, very badly treated in all sorts of sectors. Um, so are indigenous people such as the Uyghurs in China. And there's a case to be made that really both countries need to take a good hard look in the mirror at themselves um, and start making some changes internally. And there's also a case to be made that when Canada talks about promoting human rights in China, it's going to have to uh, be consistent about that um, instead of changing right. on a dime. Instead of, as we did with the Tiananmen Square killings in 1989, imposing sanctions, but carefully calculated so they would not harm Canadian business interests. Um, we're going to have to potentially take a risk to Canadian business interests if we want to actually have a consistent human rights advocacy policy, um, which you know the foreign minister is touching on these ideas of multilateralism and human rights and international norms in the, uh, in the clip that you played earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, one follow-up here before I let you go. You mentioned that you didn't think um, increasing military pressure is an effective strategy. It looks like you know some other countries are talking about a containment strategy, and we see the nuclear submarine deal happening with Australia, the UK, and the United States. Why do you think more, uh, not, not a show of force, but you understand what I mean, uh, a stronger defense posture? Why do you think that's not an effective strategy? Um, I think that if you surround another country with uh, hostile military forces, then you're likely to increase the paranoia in that country. So, and this is a country that has leaders who could be well prone to paranoia. No country is more ringed about with hostile military presence than North Korea. Um, We have a pariah state, a hermit state with nuclear weapons as a result. It hasn't been an effective containment strategy um, in the way that uh, had been hoped for. So that's not effective. It's just likely to lead to an arms race with China, and people are already talking about a new Cold War, and we don't want that. Right. Right. Yeah, so keep the channels of communication open then. So we need to keep the channels of communication open, but we also have to be consistent and speak about um, values, including human rights, and keep advocating for other Canadians who are still in prison, such as Hussein Chalil, um, another Canadian citizen who's been held in China since uh, 2006. Yeah, so there's dozens there's of more them. to be done. Yeah, uh, David, fascinating discussion. Thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Okay, thanks for talking to me. Yeah, you bet. That is David Webster, who is an associate professor of history at Bishop's University. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. 
And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us. 